We don't do this, this we, don't, we don't do this that often to, to guest preach, but this is the only place that has walk-up music. <laughs> I feel like I'm up to bat in the bottom of the ninth. Um, greetings from Sacramento. Um, again, my name is Brad Asher. My son is here with me. We, we left Mama and Story and Flannery behind today, and we'll rejoin them later uh, for some celebration because today is a holiday, um, a couple of holidays actually. It, uh, in, in one way, our culture celebrates a Father's Day today, and uh, while we didn't come up with it, Christians can get behind that uh, because uh, we have a good, good father in heaven who shows us how to be fathers and, uh, and how to love like a good, good father. It's also Juneteenth, and uh, so parts of our culture celebrating emancipation and as christians we certainly can get behind that uh we have been set free by the blood of christ and are no longer slaves to our sin and so uh i'm not going to preach about either of those things today so uh <laughs> there you have it i'm going to invite you to stand with me if you will and i'm going to read this morning um from first samuel chapter 16 this is first samuel 16 1 to 13 um, we're going to look uh at what it looks like to be a person after God's own heart. In uh, 1 Samuel 16, 1 to 13, it says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I've rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king amongst his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem and the elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Then they came. He looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as men see. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass, pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. But behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise and anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from, the, from that day forward. And Samuel rose and went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. <clears throat> Maybe you've heard of King David. Maybe you've even heard that the Bible 
calls him a man after God's own heart. He's often referred to that way. That actually comes from a different passage in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 13, 14. And uh, just so, to, so you have a bit of a summary, because it feels like we're, uh, we're diving into the middle of a story. So a, a bit of a summary of the situation where we find ourselves, give you an idea of the setting and the moment in Israel's history in the Old Testament. I'm going to read just a few uh, lyrics from a song by a guy named Andrew Peterson. Andrew Peterson has a, a song he calls uh, So Long Moses. It's a bit of a history of the history of Israel. And in that song, he sings and he says that the people of Israel cried out and they said, uh, we want a king. We want a king on a throne full of power with a sword in his fist. Will there ever be, will there ever be a king like this? And then he sings, hello, Saul, first king of Israel. You were foolish and strong, so you didn't last long. Goodbye, Saul. That's the context. People of Israel cried for a king. They got a king. He was foolish and strong, and he didn't last long. So long, Saul. And that's the moment uh, where the, the part of the scripture that we read this morning begins. Saul, the first king of Israel, whom the prophet Samuel had anointed, but has now been told in 1 Samuel 13, 12, but now your kingdom shall not continue, the Lord said to Saul. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you to do. So this is the moment Saul has been told by the prophet that the Lord's spirit's no longer with him and that there'll be a new king. And that king will be a man after God's own heart. That is actually the way that the Bible, the scripture, describes David even before David is named. That God's going to find a man after his own heart. And uh, that's specifically what I'm interested in exploring this morning as we talk. Uh, what does it mean to be someone after God's own heart? This morning I want to look at the, day, at the story of David's anointing that we just read in, in 1 Samuel 16. And ask, what does it mean when it says that the Lord sees not as man sees? Man looks at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so I want to ask three questions this morning in our time together. What does it look like to look for God's heart? Particularly to look for God's heart in the midst of grief or despair or unexpected circumstances. Secondly, I want to ask, what is God looking for when he looks on the heart? And third, what is God calling us to when he calls us after his own heart? So let's begin. Looking for God's heart. Looking for God's heart in the midst of grief and despair and unexpected circumstances. A few years ago, I discovered uh, a musician, a guy named Josh Gerrels. If you haven't listened to any Josh Gerrels, I recommend it. Um, not everybody loves him. He's an interesting character. Uh, he has a, his music is a fascinating combination of acoustic guitar, folk rock, falsetto, and spoken word uh, that's almost rap, but not really hip-hop. Anyway, one of my favorite songs is... Uh, it's called Farther Along. It's actually a remake of an old Elvis song. So that gives you a little bit of a context about who Josh Garrels is. But uh, it really spoke to me during a time of grief and, uh, 
It's a good example, I think, of the kind of wordplay that I, that I love that I hear when I listen to Josh Girls. Here's just a few lines from that song, Farther Along. He says, There's so much more to life than we've been told. It's full of beauty that will unfold and shine like you struck gold, my wayward son. The dead weight burden weighs a ton. I go down to the river and let it run. Wash away all the things you've done. Forgiveness. All right. Farther along, we'll know all about it. Farther along, we'll understand why. So cheer up, my brothers. Live in the sunshine. We'll understand this all more by and by. Do you hear the way he uses uh, repeating sounds, the way that he uses words that sound almost the same but have different variations in their meanings, the way that he does that word play? If we could read 1 Samuel 16 in the original Hebrew we would discover something similar to that. There's a word play and a, rep a repetition of sounds that goes on in uh, 1 Samuel 16. It it's all actually a play on a word, a Hebrew word, ra'ah. And ra'ah is sort of the basis for a bunch of different compound words that all seem to mean something similar, like to see or to discover or to provide or to appear or to choose. And, uh, and, and that word and variations on that word keep appearing throughout this passage. And that root word ra'ah is, is used no less than nine different times in different ways to drive home the point that the passage is not so much about David and it's about what God sees and what God provides and who he chooses. That's what the passage is about. The passage begins with Yahweh, God addressing Samuel, the prophet. Uh, this is the guy who the book is named after, right? First Samuel. And uh, he's also the guy that anointed Saul, that first king of Israel, who was foolish and strong and didn't last long. And, and uh, God says to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn and go. Fill your horn with oil and go. So there's a lot, I think, that Samuel could be grieving about. God asked him, how long are you going to grieve over Saul? Maybe, uh, so just imagine that, you know, your vocation is profiting and your job is to anoint kings and, uh, and you feel like may, you've anointed the wrong guy. So maybe he's fighting self-pity uh, that he chose the wrong guy. Maybe... Uh, that his guy that he anointed failed so miserably, so publicly. Maybe he's tempted to be embarrassed uh, by Saul's behavior and by the way that it makes Israel look in front of other nations that are looking on on their first king. Maybe, maybe uh, he's trying not to be overcome by worry about what will become of him and what will become of Israel now that this king experiment thing has gone so wrong and and, and Saul is behaving so badly. It's easy in a difficult time. It's easy in, a, in an unexpected time to get sucked inward towards self-focus and self-pity. When your plans fail, when your hopes are dashed, when things are going unexpectedly, it's easy to grieve about me and what happened to me or what I've done. But there's something really instructive about Samuel's grief. The passage says that he's grieving over Saul, not himself. 
This is not self-pity. In fact, in the midst of uncertainty and distress, it seems like Samuel is grieved and concerned for someone that he probably cares about uh, a lot. And specifically, uh, because this person that he cares about, Saul, has rejected and rebelled against God's good plan. God's good design for king, kingship. So he's, he's grieving over Saul's sin. He's grieving the fact that uh, this king whom he loves has rejected God's instruction and his design. He, uh, he's lamenting godlessness and, and wondering what will, what will happen. It seems like uh, the inevitable fall of Israel will happen because of the selfishness of its leader. Uh, so there's something very appropriate um, about Samuel's grief that puts him in a position, I think, to hear from God. And that's the passage that we're reading today, when he heard from God in his grief. And so the question I would ask is, are we putting ourselves in that position? When things go wrongly, when things go unexpectedly, when things go painfully, do we mourn over sin or sink into self-pity? Uh, do we mourn over sin or do we talk about sin and gossip about sin? Do we lament failures or specifically do we lament church failures and divisions or do we stand uh, in self-righteous judgment um, because it wasn't on us, it was on them? Do we sink into self-pity and grieve uh, or do we grieve real injustice? Do we lament godlessness and expect that because of the God that we believe in and that we read about the scriptures, that even though we can't see it, farther along we might understand why this is happening. Farther along we might understand what God is up to in the midst of this difficult. And in fact, if God is not done writing the story, which until Jesus returns, he's not, then we can expect a good, good father to step in. And that's exactly the kind of encouragement that Yahweh's address uh, gives Samuel. He says, fill up your horn with oil and go. This story is not done. I have seen a king, and I have provided for myself a king. Uh, from the sons of Jesse, he says, and so I'm not done. I'm still writing a story, and I'm unfazed that none of this has been outside of my control. Farther along, you're going to understand why. And so the second question, what is God looking for? when he looks on the heart. In 2015, uh, in the 2015 Broadway musical, Hamilton, a family favorite in the Carpenter House, Lin-Manuel uh, Lin Miranda writes about back office political deals. And here's the lyric, you may or may not be familiar with it. He says, no one really knows how the game is played the art of the trade, how the sausage gets made. We just assume that it happens, but no one else is in the room when it happens. That's the sort of thing the elders in Jerusalem were wary of when Samuel shows up. He shows up on the scene, and no doubt everyone in Israel has heard that the prophet Samuel has had a falling out with the king, Saul. And um, so what's he doing in our town? And what happens if we get mixed up with Samuel? And 
And so Samuel had some of those fears himself. We read this morning that he said, he essentially says, I can't go around doing back office anointings, right? There is a king. I can't just go anoint another king and make a deal someplace. He says, if Saul hears it, he will kill me. But God says, invite Jesse and his sons to a worship service, and I'll show you, and that's that word, ra'ah, what's next. Here's the scene. Samuel sets up a worship service with a sacrifice, and Jesse rolls in with his sons. And Samuel has been told that one of them is going to be the next king of Israel. And as soon as he lays eyes on the oldest son, Eliab, he's convinced this is the guy. He's ready to pop the cork on his oil and, and anoint this guy king. He's, uh, he's tall, he's handsome, he's ripped. He's the firstborn son. That's the way it's supposed to be. The firstborn gets to be the king. Except, except that that's what Samuel did last time. You don't have to look too far. You can go back to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 9. Uh, chapter 9, verse 2, it says that when he looked on Saul, that first king of Israel, he saw that he was a handsome young man, and that there was not a man among the people of Israel who was more handsome than he from his shoulders upward, he was a head taller than anyone else. That's the guy that drew Samuel's eye the first time. And in verse 7 it says, But the Lord said to Samuel, and I think this is the most important verse in the passage this morning. He says, Do not look, Ra'ah, on his appearance also, Ra'ah, or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, Yarah, not as man sees, Yarah, Man looks ra'ah on the outward appearance, ra'ah, but the Lord looks ra'ah on the heart. What does it mean that the Lord looks on the heart? Well, if you only read verse 7, right? Don't look at the outward appearance, look at the inward appearance. Uh, you might think that it means God only chooses ugly people. That would be good news for some of us in the room. Which... Uh, but we're, we're going we're gonna to learn in just a couple of verses that it can't mean that because David shows up and it says that he's ruddy and that he's handsome and that he had beautiful eyes. And so it wasn't just that outward appearance wasn't good, but that outward appearance wasn't important. Maybe he wasn't as tall as Eliab, his older brother, or, or, or as handsome as Abinadab, or as muscular as Shema, or I don't know what, what set him. He was different. There's four other brothers that got passed over, but the point is that external appearance was not the point. Um, and cultural expectations were not the point. It should have been the firstborn if they were going to follow precedence. The firstborn would be the one who would be anointed to be king. The point, in fact, is that while we will discover that David has many gifts, that giftedness is not the point. We, we each, I think, know all too well when we are being used for our gifts Maybe some of us have even experienced being used because of how we look. It's an organization that wants someone that looks like us to be on their website or on their board. Uh, we, we understand when we're being used for our gifts or for what we look like, and we have a sense when those relationships have become transactional. This isn't about who I am or what's in my heart. This is about what I can do for this organization. People want us around because of what they can get from us. 
Our recent church history in the United States is, is particularly full of stories where some of the largest megachurches in America uh, have a wake uh, behind them littered with the fallout of leaders who were elevated because of giftedness or because of popularity and uh, not because of the godliness of their character or the maturity of their faith. And there's stories of churches that exploded or imploded and uh, they chewed up and spit out their staff and uh, even sometimes leaving senior pastors either lonely and empty or sometimes even suicidal. We know uh, that we use people transactionally. We know when uh, a relationship is moving towards just what I can get from you. We'll, we'll meet up, uh, we'll have a text exchange, we'll get what we need. And I think that uh, when we think about what God looks for, what God, when God is looking at, a heart, at, at our hearts, it challenges us to stop when we realize that we're having those sorts of relationships. To stop and stay in relationship with someone who's, uh, who, who you're relationship is moving towards transaction. Engage with them. Share a meal with them. Uh, share an experience with them that has nothing productive about it except knowing one another and knowing each other's heart. You may be saving a relationship. You may be saving a workplace without knowing it. You might even be saving someone's life. Someone who is feeling more and more isolated because they're gifted but not known. So if it's not about appearance and it's not about giftedness, it says that God's looking at a heart, what, what is God calling us to when he calls us after his own heart? What was it about David or what would come out in David's life and his character that would show that he was different from the way that Saul had operated? It's interesting to note that in the New Testament, when Paul talks about the qualification of a leader for elders and for deacons, later on you can read in 1 Timothy 3 or Titus chapter 1 if you want to, there is, this may surprise you, no physical description of the leaders. There is no preferred body type for church leaders. Uh, there's actually no reference to, perfect, to a perfect moral record. Um, there's no required resume of accomplishments. Uh, we most certainly need leaders who are gifted, um, but the description of a leader begins with a description of character, a description of faith. In another place, Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5, and he says love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control rather than appearances. So this is the fruit of the Spirit rising out of someone's life and out of their ministry and out of their faith. This is not the, how they appear. This is not their record of actions. It's not their accomplishments. These, what the New Testament is saying, is an indication of the condition of someone's heart. This is, what, this, is where God, this is what God would see when he looked upon 
their heart. And this is consistent with the way that Jesus talked about the heart as well. In Mark chapter 7, verses 18 18 and 19, he teaches that it's not what's on the outside that defiles a person, but the things that come out of a person that defile them. In another place, he says, you will recognize them by their fruit. Every healthy tree bears good fruit, and a diseased tree bears bad fruit. In Matthew chapter 3, Jesus actually confronts leaders who have a great outward appearance. Leaders who are um, in places of power because of cultural tradition. And he, he, con- he confronts people who look good on the outside but are dead in their hearts. And he says to those teachers of the law, you brood of vipers, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's what he says. Repentance. How do you bear fruit keeping with repentance? We usually associate the word repentance with sin or disobedience, something that I need to repent of. But it actually means turning. To turn around is to repent. Uh, Specifically turning away from whatever it is that I'm facing and towards God. So if you track the reign of Saul, the first king of Israel, who was foolish and strong and didn't last long, Um, you'll find that this is the thing that he simply could not do. Turn around and go towards what God was asking. He could not admit that he was wrong. He was headstrong. He was rebellious. Uh, He couldn't turn from those things. we We will find that David's reign was not without mistakes. It was not without sin. But what Saul couldn't do is turn and admit As we track the life of David, we will not find that it's a straight line of faithfulness or a perfect moral record. In fact, what we find in David's life is many, many opportunities for repentance. Opportunities to say, God, you are right. I was wrong. In fact, what we will find is that the the primary difference between David, who is a rascal, and Saul is the fruit of repentance. I want to challenge you to consider that the change that you hope for in life will be found in a a lifestyle of repentance. Rather than a lifestyle of appearance, pursuing what you appear to, what you think other people want you to look like, rather than pursuing even a lifestyle of moral rigor, uh, keeping, uh, keeping us straight and narrow. Repentance is completely unconcerned with outward appearance, right? Uh, in fact, attempting to appear like you have it all together uh, when you don't is the opposite of repentance. It's, uh, it's hard-heartedness and it's a refusal to turn, it's to admit the truth. And repentance is not uh, just a lifestyle of remorse, right? I can't believe I did that. I just can't forgive myself. That's not repentance. It's actually... Uh, just feeling badly and not turning. It's self-centered. And repentance is not resolution. I'm going to do better. I'll never do that again. I'm going to do better next time. And and, uh, that is not repentance. That's resolution. But uh, you haven't turned from where you were going. Repentance is actually realization of reality. I'm a sinner. Or as Richard Loveless says, I'm an organic network of compulsive attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors deeply rooted in my alienation from God. 
And repentance is the regular and unsurprised response to my own sin. Uh, I did that. I can believe that I did that because I'm a sinner and I need God's grace. I can believe that I need forgiveness. That's why there's a Savior. Lord, forgive me. You're my only hope. Can you imagine the friendships in your own life that would have been saved if both parties approached those relationships with a lifestyle of repentance? Can you imagine the marriages that could be saved? In David's case, it's the very kingdom of Israel and ultimately the lineage of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, that are held in the balance as he decides not to keep going his own way each time, but turn to follow the Lord. And so David is anointed king by Samuel, and the passage says that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And in the same way that he promised to do for each of us. That's what the New Testament says. It says that when we put our faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit will come into your life. And here's the thing. Yahweh not only calls David, but then he equips him with his spirit to do the work that he's calling him to do. And for David, the, the work that God will call him to do is going to get him in trouble. I'm sorry to say but it will get you in trouble too. In the words of folk singer Ray LaMontagne, oh, trouble, trouble, trouble. Feels like every time I get back on my feet, she comes around to knock me down again. David's heart for God, his faithfulness to his call, and the obvious spirit of God in his life would would work in a way that ultimately thrusts him into dangerous situations, into jealousy from others like Saul. Uh, it puts him in conflict with people in his family, betrayal of his own son. One commentator, Dale Davis, says that David, the man with the spirit, will be hunted and betrayed and trapped, escaping, hiding in caves, living in exile, driven to the edge which is why it should be no surprise to us uh, then that Jesus understands himself to be a son of David. This is one of the ways that he talks about himself. I am the, the son of David, not only because he's the descendant of David, and we see that lineage, ultimately he's a great, great something grandson of King David, um, but because... Remember, as soon as the Spirit of God comes on Jesus at his baptism, God speaks and he says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. As soon as the Spirit of God rushes on him, what comes next? Trouble. Temptation in the desert. Opposition. Disbelief. Betrayal. Ultimately, his crucifixion. And the reason that he died... The purpose was to show us God's heart. Putting on display God's character. The fruit of God's love is, uh, is this life and this hope that we have when we realize that in Christ God has made a way for us to repent. He has made a way for us to return to him. Christ made the way at the cross. The fruit of God's love is this hope that for all who repent 
and turn to Jesus, uh, there is forgiveness and life. When, when we find ourselves in that trouble, we turn to Jesus, whose trouble really wasn't his own trouble, right? Who, Jesus was on the cross suffering for us the trouble that we made, that our sin made. He suffered the consequences of our sin so that he might pour out his spirit on those who would receive it and have life. That's what we celebrate at the table. I'm going to end asking Harry to help me bring this up here. But uh, as you're invited to the table of the Lord, let me just remind you what this represents. The broken.